Thank you, everybody, for listening in to another episode of Her Wild Outdoors. Today, we have an awesome guest, Sue Tedwell. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Amy, for having me. I appreciate you having me on here. Well, it's it's awesome to be able to have someone join the ranks of the Her Wild Outdoors uh, episodes that uh, has such a passion like you do for not just the outdoors, but for uh, a community that we are building and striving to keep uh, to keep where it is and make it better. And so I'm excited to get to talk to you and hear a little bit of your background and how this all started. So would you do me a favor and give us just a little intro on who you are and, and kind of how Africa and how the outdoors has impacted your life? Sure. Um, well, I grew up, I'm Sue Tidwell, and I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. So, you know, I've always been around hunting, you know, hunting was, deer hunting was pretty much a religion in that part of the country. So I grew up around hunting and eating wild meat. And so hunting was normal for me. I I was never against it or anything, but um, I I was never a hunter myself. Mm -hmm. Um, So I ended up marrying a hunter, needless to say, that just fell right in line with it. I met my husband in Anchorage, Alaska when I was living up there and, and one thing led to another and we got married and then we moved to rural Idaho where he grew up. Well, my hunter, my husband had always dreamt of Africa and I had always dreamt of Africa, but as a non-hunter, of course, my view was always, you know, a lodge and going to the parks and mm-hmm. all the animals stand there and pose for you and you're just going to see all these magnificent things but my husband's dream of africa was a hunting safari so um and he didn't want just any he wanted like in the wild like he wanted to be as old-fashioned you know old-time hunt as possible so mm. and i was you know i was really torn because as much as I understood hunting in America, I was really torn about hunting in Africa. And it just seemed different somehow hunting, you know, the animal, like zebras, you know, we grew up on, in Idaho, we were surrounded, his family has like 30, 40 horses. So, you know, that's a major part of the ranch. So to, the idea of killing a zebra, for instance, was just, it just boggled my mind. Yeah, it was foreign. And, it, it's totally it's foreign. foreign, yeah. Yeah, and it's an exotic animal, and you just, you know, I grew up, you know, loving Tarzan mm-hmm. and all that whole dream, you know. And but anyway, so I really was torn, and I, I was also scared. I knew we were going to be sleeping in a tent out in the middle of nowhere, um, hundreds of miles from civilization. And you know, I, I had read. I don't know if you ever read Peter Capstick's book, um, Death in the Long Grass. But yeah. oh my gosh, that is a must read. And it will scare the living <laughs> crap out of you. So don't read it before you go to Africa. But okay. it's a fantastic book, I think, anyway. But so I had, you know, visions of black mambas and lions tearing through tents and just all these kinds of things that I, you know, that they're a rarity, but at the same time, they're in your mind, you know. And and I, when I went to Idaho, I went hunting. I, even though I don't hunt, I love going on hunts with Rick. So I love that part of it. I love being in the wilderness. I love being outside. You know, I, I love the adventure that comes with it. And you never know what's going to happen next. I love all that mm-hmm. stuff. 
but I was scared about Africa. I mean, that was, you know, I was thinking of a tent like in Idaho where, you know, mice and snakes can crawl under the tent. So I'm thinking of black mambas crawling under the tent, Yeah, and, you know, like waking up with one on my lap or something. But, um, but anyway, I, I did go and, you know, as, as many doubts as I had about the whole situation, I went and I, I just fell in love with it. I just mm-hmm. fell in love with that. So, and I, I, I learned so much. I mean, how long were you guys there for that hunt? We were there, we were there like three and a half weeks. So, so you got to kind of immerse yourself in it. I was in Africa for two weeks and I was, it was split. My time was split between South Africa and Kenya, but I was able to kind of immerse myself, not just in um, the touristy part, but in real life. And I think that that's what, that's what draws you back is being able to not just visit for a couple of days, but be there. I, I think you're so right because, you know, as much as my dreams had been to go like to the Serengeti and be on a tourist thing where you're on a bus with all these people and, you know, see the wildlife, not afraid. I think it would have been, it would have been, I mean, I'm not saying that wouldn't be wonderful. I encourage anyone to do it because both kinds of tourism are needed in Africa, mm-hmm. but I think we would, I would have missed out on so much because we were in like a village kind of like, it wasn't really a village because it was a hunting camp, but it was 21 um, rural um, uh, Africans, Tanzanians, and we were there with them the whole time. So I got like, there was no moving around or anything. We were with that 21 people the whole time. And then on our safari vehicle, there was, you know, six of us. Mm -hmm. So, um, we got so close to them and I just, I just fell in love with the people as much as I did the country. And I just learned so much. I, I, I know this is going to sound really corny, but, um, I feel like I was, those people were put in my life at that particular time for a specific reason. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my background I just feel like everything came together on that safari, if Mm -hmm. that makes any sense. It does. uh, Because Lillian, who, um, if you read, if you read my book, you're going to learn a lot about Lillian, but she was our Tanzanian game scout. And in Tanzania, they put a a game scout has to go with you on every um, hunt to make sure everything's legal and they document everything. Mm -hmm. And they don't have any affiliation with the outfitters. So she was totally new to this whole 20 people as well. So, and she was assigned to Rick and I on our, on our land cruiser with our pH and our trackers. And, um, she spoke really good English. So it was just, we just instantly developed a friendship. She's only, she was only 23 years old when I met her and, um, what an amazing woman. And, um, she just taught me so much. She taught me Swahili. She just taught me so much about, she blew away a lot of my misconceptions, Mm, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as far as like poaching and hunting and things like that. And she, she is actually the one who really got me understanding how important hunting is to Africa. And she even, 
I mean, she's that's what she does. She's there to protect animals. So who better to hear it from? It's know? true. No, I think it's, that that's a, a huge point that you're making right there is learning from those who live in this, who live there, who uh, who are doing the things that you are trying to learn about. That's like I could listen to them all day and grow heaps in that kind of support versus, you know, some person over here in the States going, well, this is why and this is, you know, this is why we do it. And this is why. No, I I, I mean, I can definitely learn from somebody having a conversation. I'm sitting here listening to you, but you in turn learned it from somebody who was in the middle of it who is giving you firsthand why this works, why she does what she does. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Like one of the first things I remember is we came across some elephant bones, you know, and they weren't from anything that that um, our safari group had ever hunted. So mm-hmm. they knew that it could have been natural causes. It was too late to tell by then, or it could have been poaching during the off season. But we were, you know, looking at the bones and everything, and Lillian was explaining to me just how important hunting was because, well, we got explaining about how dangerous the animals are and that one of the big, I always thought of poaching as just like people wanting to come in for the tusks and the, you know, the lion claws mm-hmm. and things like that, that I learned that it was so much more than that, you know, villagers poison um, the animals and stuff just because they don't want to live they're just too dangerous and destructive to live with I mean yeah. it's they're dangerous the animals they live with and um, that's one of the huge causes of death over there to lions and leopards and any of the dangerous animals mm-hmm. you know hyenas and just poisoning and terrible snares and stuff and it's not all like she said it's not just because they want, it's not, they want the, a lot of times they're just left there to rot. There's nothing taken from the. Right. It's wasted. Mm-hmm. It's wasted. It's not, it's not a, and it's indiscriminate. It's not like an old male, like it would be for hunting. You know, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's, it's just random and it's all ages and it's, um, and it's not even done to make money. That's the key point. I always thought it was always to make money, but a lot of the poisoning and deaths over there are just to be rid of the animals. Mm-hmm. So I um, think that my podcast with Olivia had a lot of conversation about that, about putting value to an animal to create a safer environment for them, to create exactly. a, a better uh, habitat for them to grow and to multiply, but also to create that that symbiotic life, like the ability to live with them to those who are living with them because it's not easy here. Like you said earlier, they're exotics. It's this magical being that we don't necessarily see unless it's behind bars at a zoo. We see them in cartoons talking and acting like a person. We see them, um, you know, act. What is the the movie that my kids watch all the time? It's um, 
It's got the zebra and it's got the lion. It's got like all lion of the- King? Not, not, not Lion King. No, it's the newer one where they they can be circus animals or they can they travel oh, the Mad- world. Madagascar? Yes, the Madagascars, okay. all the Madagascar movies and shows and all of that. But it's personification of these exotic animals. And how do you get that out of your mind when you hear that they are being hunted? Well, go to Africa and they're just like your deer population. It's they can be nuisances. They can be dangerous, like you said. They can they can take on this negative part of your life if your life depends on your crops and it depends on how tall your fence is and all of that. It's totally different. We cannot compare our personified view of an animal to the exotic animals that are over there. No, it's just, it's just, it's just totally different. And small things will bring that home to you. But um, I like, just for instance, when, when we were there, I wanted to go outside of the, you know, the, the little, our little area had some fences around certain areas, but animals could still get in and out if they wanted. But I wanted to walk just outside to take some pictures of elephant footprints. And oh my gosh, it turned into such a huge deal. I had to have an escort. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you know, if, if I wanted to go sit by the hippo, there was a hippo pond like 300 yards away. And I had this great idea. I was going to go sit there and read in the afternoon by up above on the rocks above the hip because i was safe because i was on the rocks from mm-hmm. the hippos so i was worried about the hippos and they're like sue that's the most dangerous part of the day to be at the water is because that's when the animals come to feed so that's also when lions could come in so mm. i mean things we don't think about and then this was probably got me more than anything but we were coming home from a safari one day and we ran across three um people walking and we of course Immediately, everybody kind of grabbed their guns, got tense, thought maybe they were poachers. But then we saw there was no guns, and Raphael slowed down, and we talked to them. And they were um, three members from a camp five or ten miles away and on some border, and they needed medicine. So they had walked to our camp hoping to find medicine. So, of course, Raphael put them in the back of our safari vehicle. And later, and it was like 2 or 3 in the afternoon, we were coming back for lunch or something. So it was right in the heat of day. And I said to Raphael, I said, Raphael, why wouldn't they have waited till evening? Or why didn't they come in the morning when it was still cooler out instead of the heat of the day? And he said, he said it's the safest time of day to walk yep. because a lot it down mm-hmm. i mean that simple statement i know that sounds maybe mild but can you imagine having to plan your entire life around when is the safest day to walk mm-hmm. i mean it's just things we cannot even comprehend no you know? yeah uh-uh we i was in kenya uh out at a safari uh area it was we were kind of in this little there's nothing else out there it was like you fly in this little six-seater airplane out to the dirt uh runway and there's a hole in the ground to go to the bathroom and so we're way outside of nairobi like way out and uh it it was the same thing please don't go out at night please don't like once you have been brought to where you are sleeping, please stay in there unless you hear otherwise. And those are just things that I take for granted here. And, you know, even going over to Colorado, 
I where we were staying over there, I had 16 teenagers with me. And the news was, do not go by yourself. Do not go by yourself. If you're out at night, please do not go by yourself. And it was because of bears. But, mm-hmm. well, and moose, too, because moose can be very... Um, yeah, they can be nasty. <laughs> they too. can be pretty nasty. So it was just like I was going back to how what I was being told in Africa, and it was coming back to me when I was in Colorado, being told, "Don't go by yourself." But I was like, "This, this is a totally different situation. It's something that you really cannot." get your mind to grasp is what these people live with every day when they are outside of the city and in situations where, like you said, you have to think about, I have to walk in the middle of the day when it is hot so that I don't get hurt. Yeah, it's just, you know, we were told the same thing, what you're saying about Kenya is we were told do not leave our tents at night. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had little bathrooms, kind of makeshift bathrooms attached to our tent. And we were not, we were allowed to go in there, but we were told not to leave, uh, you know, leave outside of that. And I know an outfitter who lost, he knew two people that died. One went out and was killed by an elephant Uh. and one was killed by a lion by going outside at night. So it's kind of like, no, I mean, it's just things you just... You know, and, and I was talking with Rafael, was our PH, and he, you know, he he's lived in Tanzania his whole life. He started as a as a tent attendant, and he worked his way up to tracker, and then he got his PH license. So he he's just an amazing man himself. I I just loved him to death. He was just so quiet and soft spoken, and just so intelligent as a as a PH. But um, anyway, I was somehow talking about paddleboarding here in America, and he said. What about the crocodiles? Oh, I mean, the oh, look yeah. his face was like he was incredulous that I would be paddleboarding on a river, mm-hmm. and I had to explain to him, "Well, we don't really have we have a few alligators, you know, in the south, whatever, da da da." But we don't really have to worry about crocodiles. I mean, Man. it was just that's something they have to think about. They can't all that heat in Africa. I always thought, what a cool joke God played on Africa. You know, they gave them all this heat. And but then they gave them all this this water that you can't get in because you could get eaten. Right. So it's, it's like, oh, no, but. I get we were I was with uh, a group of Maasai and we were on safari and we got to see a couple of kills that had happened, uh, not as hunters, but lions. And they had. You know, they were eating and we got to see crocodiles, of course, and we got to see uh, hippos. And they said, "Okay, you can get out here at the river. You can get out. You have to stand here. And it's probably very similar with you, with them telling you time of day, like we couldn't be there at certain times of day, but we could get out. But there were six people surrounding us with spears and guns. To protect us. Yeah. And I was going, I mean, I don't want to put anybody in any danger. I can sit in the truck. Like, I don't have to get out. I can sit from a distance so that nobody puts their life in danger. And yet this is this. And then I forget and I don't say it because I have to hold myself back and say, this is how they make money. This is what their job is. This is how Mm -hmm. they are providing for their families. And I remember William was one of our guides and 
the things that he taught me, I have a journal with all of the words that they taught me from all of the different parts of the countries. And he would sit there and he would ask questions of, so what is it like to go to university in America? And what is it like to, uh, to take a walk on the street? Like all of these questions that I take for granted. And I don't know. I think it kind of goes back to, I know that you heard my podcast with Ryan about how we both agree when we leave Africa, we leave a piece of us back there we do i mean it gives me chills just think about it because um i get emotional mm-hmm. Sorry. no that's um, okay africa just gets in you it, mm-hmm. it really does it's you know it it um it changes like, you, know, you. Point, it changes you it's, it changes you and it and when you you realize we we take so much for granted here so much for granted and I don't know. I just, I just, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know how to put it words, but it's a magical place. It's Mm -hmm. harsh. It's unforgiving. Mm -hmm. It's magical. It's amazing. It's all these things, but it's very complex. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's why we, we gotta, when people make decisions on conservation, you gotta take their, you gotta take the African perspective into it. You can't just sit here sit here you know in america and um have all these opinions until you really understand what their reality of their lives are like Mm -hmm. you know yeah we can't yeah i would never ever presume to even be able to make decisions based on their lives for them that's not not only is it disrespectful but it's it's impossible um yeah i i my last my trip to africa was back in 2005 and i can still remember the smells and uh the sounds and the noise of not just different words that i had never heard before but the sounds of whether it was traffic or nature whatever situation i was in i remember from the beginning of how foreign it felt to the end to where it felt comfortable does that make sense yes because well we were like i said we were hundreds of miles it was a two and a half hour bush ride from arusha so we were way out yeah i don't know where and that first night in the tent, when we started here, and well, the hyenas started first, you mm-hmm. know, and you're hearing hyenas and, and of course, all the other critters going on. And then about 2 a.m., we heard our first lion. And it was just like that. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like the, the MGM studios that, you know, that wasn't that kind of a roar. It was just these, these grunts and these, mm, and, yeah. oh my gosh. It just, it it was it was scared you to death but at the same time it was just it was just so enlivening or just so mesmerizing even though you were literally scared to death but by the but i came to just lo- i loved the nights i loved listening to those sounds i called it the african symphony that's what yes. i mean that's why i get my book because it was like every symphony was a little different every night 
was just a little different. It depended what animals added to it, you know, and and um, like hyenas were always there. You never missed the hyenas, and there was always hippos and elephants, and you know the lions were pretty much there every night. But it was just every night was just a little different. I just we couldn't wait to wake up in the morning and say, okay, what did you hear last night? <laughs> it's almost oh. like a reverence uh, when you're there. It's it's when you're either at night or during the day with whatever situation that you're in, there's almost a reverence to it. It's kind of like you're in awe, but it's respect filled. And uh, yeah, you can't get it anywhere else in the world. You can't. No, no, you can't. And it's just, and I tried to tape it and it doesn't work. It didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, I did that one time in Haiti. We had, so there are roosters everywhere in Haiti and the roosters are attached to their hen by a string. They're tied together. And so oh. every morning around 3 a.m., a rooster would start crowing right outside of our window. And, of course, the windows don't have screens or glass or bars or anything like that. It's just open air. And it was just this daggum rooster crowing in the middle of the night, pitch dark. You can't see anything but this rooster. And all of a sudden, you hear flap, 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 boom. And he has flown up to the windowsill. And the the, the chicken that was with him just banged against the wall and I was going this is is this real life and I tried to record it like you said I tried to record it and it's just not the same it is not the same as experiencing it I think it's hilarious yeah (laughs) yeah, that's pretty funny having you know see that needs to go in the book they're gonna write right no it it is (laughs) it is All of the stories, it's kind of like hearing your stories of your experience where you're a storyteller, you're writing a book, but you're a natural storyteller. Through these podcasts, through conversations, we are storytellers. And that's what passes on information. It's what passes on history. And honestly, without humor in those stories... It, it can fall flat. There's drama, but I think that humor is so important in telling a story. I do. <laughs> There's plenty of humor in my book, that's for sure, because I can be pretty idiotic at times. So, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> what? I, uh, tell us, tell us a little bit. We keep we keep talking about your book, but let's. I want to kind of get into it uh, right this second, since we are hinting into okay. it. Tell us about your book and uh, and how you were inspired to write it well you know i i've always liked to write and i'd always written my stories for my friends and family and everything and they all my friends and stuff have been telling me for years that i should write a book i should write a book and i always was like who really wants to listen to my stories unless you know me who wants to listen to these stories so i had always just blew it off but then when i went to africa like you said it changes you Mm -hmm. you know and and I just felt like I finally had something because I went there so against, I don't want to say so against hunting, but really not understanding really the need for it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I just, you were ignorant. Even I, and I say that respectfully. Yeah. You were just ignorant of the culture. I was ignorant, but mm-hmm. I, I, and, the, the thing, and when I talk about, I feel like, you know, I talked about being corny earlier. Um, I feel like I was perfect for this because, first of all, 
I have a different perspective as a non-hunter. Mm-hmm. And second of all, but I hadn't open enough. I don't, I know who hunters are. I don't know they're not these evil, vile people that a lot of people like to make them out to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, hunters are my brothers, my husband, my father, my friends. So I was able to go there with an open mind without this hate already in me, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if I say hate, but misunderstanding maybe mm-hmm. is a better word for it. But um, so I went with a more open mind. And then as I went there and saw it, I mean, all of a sudden, facts and statistics didn't matter. It was common sense. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to tell me, you don't have to tell me any facts or statistics about how much hunting helps because it does it, common sense tells you that the people need a reason to take the extra precautions to deal with these kind of animals yeah it, it makes common sense to understand how habitat is saved by um keeping it in hunting where that keeps that habitat natural and it, you know valuable in its natural state instead of being turned into croplands or right. pasture so it all made common sense to me. So anyway, once I got to Africa, I started learning this and evolving in my thoughts. And I just thought, finally felt like I had a story that was worth telling to the world. And plus, the second thing is I made a problem with Lillian. Um, and as I said, again, it was my art game scout. And I promised her I would try to help, you know, people understand why well-managed hunting is so important in Africa. Yeah. Um, so basically the book is fulfilling my promise. It took me a few years and it's been a lot longer journey than I had hoped or expected. Cause you know, like I said, this is my first book. So, um, but it's, you know, here I am. I think it's <laughs> almost Im- done. You're almost done. Almost done. I'm, I'm getting ready to send it off to formatting here real soon. And, Ooh. um, Jocelyn Engel, I don't know if you know her from Hunter's Inc. She's a, she, um, Edit, editor-in-chief of Hunters Inc. Mm-hmm. She um, felt so, I, I, we had been corresponding through some other reasons and I offered, or anyway, she wanted me to write an article for their magazine and I just asked her off the cuff off a question about something because I was struggling so much and she came back and offered to act as a project manager and my editor. That's so awesome. she has taken it to a whole different level. We came up with a new title, a better title. She did some marketing research and we have a new a new title, a new cover. Um, she's had, she got beta readers like non-hunters, hunters, professional hunters, um, Africans. She's got all these beta readers to get feedback, to make sure, um, you know, I'm portraying everything right. Plus Lillian's read the whole book too. My, um, the game Scott yes. is telling you about. Yes. And her, she's, she's like she's got a mind like a still trap so anytime and luckily through the internet i can like i can send her a message and she can answer me back like i'll be like what was the name of that river we were on mm-hmm. and yes you know she could answer all those questions or if i was misspelling a swahili word wrong she could clarify it i mean just from small things to big things you know she read everything but um but anyway with jocelyn coming on board that too just made it just I just think it's going to be that much more of a better book and I've gotten some really good feedback from the beta readers. So it's really exciting to hear. That's always but. scary to put your passion project out there for people to read. Uh, 
not knowing what their response is going to be because when you write or when whether you're an artist and you draw or you paint or you write that's personal right it's so personal everything that you're putting in there whether it's you or Lillian am I doing that person justice am I doing the story justice am I and and so waiting to hear back you're waiting with bated breath on what are they saying what are they going to say did i mess up did i ruin it did i because those are all of the questions that we ask ourselves is am i doing it right and and that getting the positive response back and hearing you did it right you did it justice there might be a few tweaks that's where constructive criticism comes in that's where you can make it better but it's always that waiting with bated breath of how is it going to be received across the platform, whether it's hunters or non-hunters or, like you said, Africans reading it. it it's just – it can be exciting, but it can also be so scary, right? Yeah, it's like I've, I think I've gotten into tears. I mean, like I'm not like – all out bawling, but I, I get tears in my eyes pretty much every time I've read a review that comes back because what Jocelyn did as acting as a media area, this meant I didn't know the people. So when they were commenting, they weren't commenting to me. You know I mean? They weren't commenting. They didn't know me. So right. they could be totally honest. So it was really getting the comments back was so encouraging because like I've changed, I mean, the, the views of non-hunters have even changed they said oh my gosh i find myself really um sorry that the amount of hunters are decreasing i mean that's pretty amazing coming from a non-hunter and stuff Mm -hmm. and and other people that so anyway i think it's it's encouraging but yeah it is scary you're right because you don't know you know you don't know what you're going to (laughs) hear yeah and when you put so much into it and you put your heart and you put your soul soul and you put every ounce of you into something that you feel so strongly about it you kind of have to brace yourself for any kind of response but you really hope that people see that same passion coming through your words yeah i hope so you know and i'm hoping to take them on like a journey of you know i don't want people to think it's all like i've tried to it's it's an adventure it's an adventure Mm -hmm. and then i weave in all these things i learned and and i weave in some some facts you know because i backed up everything i learned with yeah with research but so but it's a it's an adventure and it's a fun book it's not all just like pound 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 with facts or preaching or anything it's a it's an entertaining adventure that you learn as you go kind of deal which so. are the best kind of ways to learn, in in my personal opinion. I learn more from people's stories than from facts. Like you said, I love that you said that, that it went from facts and, and, uh, and statistics to common sense. Like what a statement in that itself. I think you can apply that to anything in life. You can read about it all you want. You can see it on television. You can be told one thing or another, but when it changes to just common sense, it means you've accepted that knowledge and have applied it in some way or you've seen it applied. And I don't, I just, I gain more from people's stories than from them telling me what to do. 
I, I learned from how they learned their lesson along that way. Yeah, I think it's way better that way than, mm-hmm. you know, because first of all, you don't remember facts and statistics and all that stuff anyway. You remember what speaks to your heart, yeah. more or less. It's you know, true. I, it's true. And Africa but, sings to your heart. I'm sorry. They don't speak. Uh, they sing to your heart. Yes, you're right. That's why <laughs> yeah, that's perfect when you say that. Because like I said, I call it the African symphony, my, you know, the sounds of the night, you mm-hmm. know, was my, but um, that's the first chapter of the book. But yeah, it does. It just, uh, it just gets in your soul. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Have you got plans of going back? Well, we actually went back, um, just this may okay and to namibia this time that won't be in the book at all though because that's a whole nother deal but um but yeah it was still amazing we um went on a i went on a it was a totally new experience i went on a cape buffalo hunt with my husband mm-hmm. on waterberg plateau and oh my gosh that was um that was scary um you know it was real it was so different than the open savannah you know it was really brushy and thick and you're you're literally you know 10 yards from those cape buffalo and oh it was my my heart was pounding on multiple occasions i think we stalked buffalo for 20 one particular buffalo for 24 hours whoa and i mean not at one time we kept going after him we knew over time and we kept finding his tracks. We would, and then we would follow him for four or five hours. And he, oh, he was so smart. But anyway, so, but you know, there was no lions and hyenas on Waterberg Plateau. So um, it was, it, and it just drove home to everything that I just wrote because um, what people don't realize, you know, so many people want to say that phototourism is the answer. And granted, they need phototourism and ecotourism badly but they need both kinds of tourism because they protect different areas. Yes. You know, hunting tourism, tourism protects a whole, it protects the wild areas that photo tourists don't really want to go to. I mean, you know, it's like when we were in the Simba camp, I mean, the roads were rough. It was hot. There was no amenities. There was, there was just, it took, it would have taken 16 hours of driving to get there um, if we had not, gone on a little bush plane Mm -hmm. so it's and it was and it's way more expensive to go way out there and we had 21 people taking care of us and it's like um photo tourists don't want that like i and that's what what part of that common sense thing i mentioned i you know when i was in a simba camp and they told me they told me all these things like they told me they were going to break down camp after we left and i said what i mean i was devastated that was my little like (laughs) Shangri-La. <laughs> yeah, no, I felt so attached to it, but they said, "Yeah, the poachers will move in during the off season. We have to tear it down, but but that's okay. We have to rebuild it in the spring, and it gives all this work to all this. A village it takes a village 30, 30 people thirty days to build it. And anyway, um, so um, oh, I don't even know where I was going with that. But, I didn't um, even. I have not even thought about that in the off season. What they have to do. I did not even think about that and the job opportunities that that presents. Yeah, I was all sad. You know, when Joel told me this, Joel was uh, the camp host, which you'll get to know him too. He was just oh, he's just a wonder. But anyway, um, he told me, oh, don't worry, it's a good thing. He says it gives us, it gives you know all these people employment in the spring, and they don't have much employment in these villages. The nearest village is four hours away, mm. so um, four hour jeep ride away. 
And um, and that was another thing I learned that Joel explained. He said, you have to understand that this the game part, we were we bordered um, Rungwo, or we bordered um, the Ruha uh, National Park. Okay. So we were right on the border, but the, the river where our camp was, was or dried up river, I should say, was the border. So we were like a buffer zone. They said that they, the national parks like to have hunting concessions on the outside of national parks because it acts like a buffer. Because there's, you know, poachers don't want to be where hunters are and right. all that goes with. So it acts like this buffer zone to, to to protect the national park. And I'm telling you, they take that serious. Like we'd be, we'd be chasing something. Cape Buffalo, for instance, one time or Cape we were chasing it and rick and i are so involved and you're on the ground and i'm i'm just watching every footstep but worried about snakes and everything mm-hmm. and next you know the hunt's just over and i'm like what the heck and they're like oh this is the riverbed we hit the riverbed it's it's over you know so the, the animal crossed into the park so that's why you have a ph you you know they know these areas and they Correct. know where it's, what's legal and not legal and anyway but um so but yeah, and when you're bumping around those roads and you're that far out, and when I was after Joel told me all these things, I thought, oh my gosh, it's true. If I was just a photo tour, if I hadn't come with Rick, I would be going to the Serengeti or you know all these major places, which are wonderful. I don't want to take detract from but them. But they have plenty but, of tourism there. Yes, and I would have gone there. I would have. I would have never chosen this chunk of land to go to. I would have gone to somewhere was a couple miles, a couple hours away from the airport. Uh, it would have been easy, less expensive. I would have never come out here to protect, you know, the Simba camp, the the land there. Five, it was 560 square miles of land that hunting concession was protecting. So that's huge. It and is. That's what, that's what people have to understand. Hunting tourism and photo tourism have to work in conjunction with each other because they protect different parts of land. Yes. Yes. And if you, you hear the, the argument all the time, we'll look at where the money goes, follow the money, follow the money, follow the money. Well, hunting money over in Africa, that doesn't just, you hear it all the time. It goes for anti-poaching. It goes for the habitat. It goes for uh, the people that are living there, but actually getting into it, like what you are saying you're seeing so much more of not just money. You're seeing the hands-on impact that people have, whether they're African or they're from anywhere else in the world coming in to do the hunt. You're seeing that impact, not just where the money is going. The money's important. And it, it, mm-hmm. it, I mean, money is important in this world and it gets things done, but... The hands that work that camp are doing so much more than just providing a hunt for one person. Oh, when you see that meat strung up to dry, because mm-hmm. there's no refrigeration, you know, so all the extra meat, all the meat that we didn't eat, we ate everything with, that was harvested. But um, the... Um, all, when you see all that meat and you know that that's going to their families and then mm-hmm. their liability to are taking that home, I mean, it just it just hits you in a whole different way. And when you when you get to know these people, I think that's what's so special about like what you did too is when you're when you get. I think if you would go to certain areas, you're just you maybe meet people here for a, an hour and then somebody else for an hour. But when you really get to spend time with people, yes. and connect with them, it makes the difference. I think mm-hmm. um, because. Um, 
that's what in Namibia we moved around a lot more so I didn't get to build the relationships with the people that I did in Tanzania so that part was different for me too um but um but yeah I just loved when you can build a relationship with the people and and even if you can't not all of them could speak English but you still build a relationship just from the things you do together yes. and and stuff it was just it was amazing experience goes a long way working along somebody whether there's a language barrier or not it goes a long way i one day i will go back for a hunt i definitely it is on my wish list that one day that's going to happen i was on a medical trip um back in the day we were bringing antibiotics and uh and all of the meds that we could over to different parts of um, like Kampala and uh, a couple of the other shanty towns that were across uh, Kenya and South Africa. And so to be able to see the need even drives in more, even though we were in the city, uh-huh. for the most part, it 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 drives in more the desire to be a part of that country because you see the beauty and you see the need. And you can do the same here in the States. You see the beauty of our United States, but you also see the need. So what are yeah. what are you doing to impact around you in your community? You can travel. You can yeah, yeah. you can travel wherever, and you can do you know any kind of mission trip or medical trip or whatever, and you can make an impact for a short amount of time. But what are you doing for the long run? What are you doing to fully impact the community around you to grow their world a little bit bigger? And you writing this book is doing that. It's it's growing Lillian's world into ours and it's sharing that piece of her and that group of people that you were with. You're sharing that in a way that is going to open the eyes of people who might not have ever had a glimpse into a world that is completely foreign to them well that's what i'm hoping to do i'm hoping to put i'm hoping to make it more real to people to Mm -hmm. you know to put faces and personalities to names and i mean you mean you you hear you know you hear somebody's you know, a couple of weeks ago, two little boys were killed by lions when they were out um, looking for lost cattle. But I, I want people to be able to picture, okay, that's that's Gogo's children or yeah. something. You know, it was our tracker. And um, he had four kids. Of course, they're probably a little bit more grown by now. But um, anyway, I just want people to think of everybody, put faces to the mm-hmm. names, you know, yeah. if that makes it does make sense. It's not just a statistic like you were saying. It's real life. It's these people's real life. And you're providing not just jobs, but you're providing food. You're providing uh, a way you yourself are providing a way for their story to be told. Where otherwise it might not be told. We wouldn't. I wouldn't know about Lillian unless you're talking about her unless I'm reading about her. Uh, These are the important things. This is how for centuries upon centuries, our history has been passed down through stories, through writings, through verbal uh, 
passings on through generation to generation. And without those stories, I believe that a piece of history is lost. So if if it can be documented, if it can be passed on, if it can be learned from, then there's value in it. Just like there's value in hunting in Africa, you're placing value on that animal so that they're not going to be poisoned off. They're not going to be trapped because they are a nuisance and they're dangerous. They're going to have value to it. And I don't know. That's just, it's the important part of of what we do, whether you are a hunter or a non-hunter, if you can be supportive because we all love animals and we all love the communities that those animals live in, then we can all be a part of the solution versus fighting against each other. I agree. I agree. I just think that, you know, the more we understand, the more people understand, they can Mm -hmm. support things that makes more sense, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that will really work compared to um, idealistic, you know, idealistic visions of things that just don't work in reality. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we can come up with all the rules in the world here in America or in Western societies. I don't want to blame it all on America or anything, but um, but unless the local people are on board with it, it doesn't work. No. It doesn't matter. Mm-mm. You know, so you can make these laws, but if their lives are suffering or they're, or they're you know, at risk, it's not going to work. We have to, it's so important to empower the local people and um, have them a part of the process for mm-hmm. decision making. Oh, yeah. It's- and as far as your hunting goes, you definitely need to go on a hunting um, safari. Even, I'm, I'm saying this as an odd hunter, but it's a whole different thing being on the ground with those, you know, like, um, well, the second you told me how your husband wanted to hunt I was like, okay, he's my type of hunter because that's how, like, I don't want to shoot from a truck. I want to get down on my feet and I want to actually give the respect and credit that these animals are due in hunting them. And it's, it's just, it's so different than what you think. You know, you see TV and the zebras are standing around and you're, it's just so much harder. They're so smart and mm-hmm. you have to be, to get close enough to them. Their senses are so amazing and it's really challenging. And I mean, it's so funny, but um, zebras, they're, I just was thinking that would be like a shooting gallery or something like, but it was so hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, we went after them. I don't know how many times. And, um, anyway, uh, it, it was, but I, I loved, I just loved being on the ground. I mean, I could watch Gogo was our head tracker and I, Oh, I just, I just adored him. And, um, he watching him work was just amazing to watch those trackers do their thing. And they are just, I, I could just, Follow the. I didn't care if we ever caught up to the animal. To be honest, I was just happy following behind, and I felt safe because I was always fourth in line. You know, they. Mm-hmm. I always figured snakes were gone by, time. <laughs> by the they time they to get to you. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt, you know, at first, of course, I was nervous in the beginning, but the more I was there, I just felt like I was surrounded by such mm-hmm. expertise with Rafi our PH, and then Gogo and. Abdullah and Lily, and she had her machine gun. She always had a machine gun with her. And then, of course, my husband. So I felt so safe. I mean, stuff can still happen in Africa at any time. But it was just so, um, it was just intense. And it was just 
mesmerizing watching them do their thing. And I, like I said, I never care if we got near the animal or not. I was happy just traipsing through the woods, you know, hunkered down trying to see footsteps. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. I love it. Absolutely love it. And I can't re- wait to read the book. Tell everybody the name of the book and how we're, how to follow you, but also how they can – if there's a way that they can get on a list or just tell everybody all of your information. Okay. Well, the book's name is Cries of the Savannah Mm -hmm. and an adventure and awakening, a journey to understanding African wildlife conservation. So that's the subtitle. It's a little long, but the main thing is Cries of the Savannah. Mm -hmm. And that kind of has twofold, you know, the cries that I listen to at night, you know, all their sounds and then, basically the cries for the world to awaken essentially to the truth of of how we can save african wildlife but um i have a website sue tidwell.com and there is you can read my first chapter if you want you can sign up for my email list which would be great because then um i can let you know when the book's ready because it's still probably at least a month out i'm hoping six weeks um i'm hoping november 1st but like I said, this is my first time. I'm still working through all the <laughs> details. But, um, but yeah, sign up for my email list on suetidwell.com. Um, on Instagram, you can follow me at um, suetidwellwriter. Um, and I'm all, also on Facebook at suetidwell.writer, I think. Okay. But um, the main thing I post on is Instagram. Yeah. But I guess that's about it. But, yeah, I'd love to have your support of other readers and and hopefully trying to spread this message with the world and and um and even not even hunters you know it's amazing to me amy how many hunters don't like hunting in africa Mm -hmm. have you found that i have i think it's one way or another it's well i think it's a little bit of both i think that it's based on preference like there are things that i don't have a desire to hunt uh there are things that i do have a desire to hunt one day and i think that it is just based on preference but i think that you do have all of the sub levels of hunters of who who believes in in one thing and who believes in another who is against trophy hunting who is uh, who is for it and i think that that's where we have the most conversation right now is as long as it's ethical and legal and doing a good job of giving back and and putting the money and putting the effort and the manpower back into our habitats, I think that we should be supporting that, uh, whether you whether it's your preference or not. So I think that that it goes. It's with everything. Everybody has their own opinion right now. And I think that you just have to sometimes get past personal preferences when people are doing it still correctly and they're still doing it ethically and legally. And, you know, and I think a lot of this, too, is it's, it is just so under, misunderstood mm-hmm. over there. And the whole trophy thing gets me anyway. Because I hate using that what word. What is one person's trophy? Yeah. I hate that word. You know, what's, I mean, my nephew's mule deer um, two by two could be a trophy to him because right. it's his first mule deer. Yep. I mean, you don't, um, it's all subjective, you know. Correct. The animals, my husband got in safari were by no means what anyone would else would consider a trophy but to 
him it sure was mm-hmm. um so i don't know that's such a subjective thing but yeah. anyway yeah hopefully people can just you know hopefully we'll just we'll support you and get this story out and enjoy it i think that it's twofold there's learning and there's enjoyment and you really need to have both uh to have that kind of experience so i'm excited for it to come out and uh I'm excited for your story to get out and for Lillian's story and everybody else that was involved in that to just hear their perspective and where they're coming from. And I don't know, I am i can't wait to read it. But thank you, Amy. I'm so excited too. I can't wait for it to come out too and for, you know, hopefully to reach some more people and for everybody else to learn about Lillian and Raphael and Gogo and Joel and Hillary and all the group at Masimba camp. So it will be exciting for them to get to know them a little bit. Well, thank you, Sue. I appreciate this. Well, thank you, Amy. I sure appreciate you having me on here.